It is hard to believe there's only 72 days left in this year. For many of us, 2020 has been quite the challenge, not just with the pandemic, not just with businesses closing down, but more specifically with our lack of fitness and the lack of interest in our nutrition plans. For a long time, I let myself slide and probably just like me, you've let your nutrition go. Maybe you're back at the box, but man, this nutrition is hard to get reeled back in. Well, we've got a solution for you. Own Your Eating has two new challenges starting on November 2nd. And with Halloween around the corner, you're going to have all this candy at home. Who knows what's going to happen, whether there will be trick-or-treaters or whether there won't be. But once that Halloween candy goes on sale, it's hard to resist. So what we're telling you is our new challenges start November 2nd, which means you can start signing up as early as this week. And these challenges are so different than your standard challenge because instead of putting the pressure on yourself to drop 10 pounds in 30 days, what if you just use this challenge as a jumping off point to get a better handle on your nutrition, especially as Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, the new year start to roll in. You can educate yourself with daily content from me, from Roz, from the Own Your Eating team, and gradually improve your behavioral awareness around food. All of a sudden, dialing in your nutrition doesn't sound so daunting. We firmly believe that it's important to just take each day as it comes. And if one day doesn't go so well, no big deal. You haven't failed. Just get back at it tomorrow. You'll get support from me. You'll get support from Roz. And you'll get support from our amazing groups. And the truth is, we run these challenges regularly. No one's ever perfect but everyone still gets great results. You have to drop your expectations about outcomes and stop pinning all of your hopes on the outcomes. That's not what drives results. It's actually what ruins them. Focusing on behavioral changes one at a time and becoming consistent with that habit is actually what drives the results. On your eating is all about mindset. It's not cookie cutter. It's not you have to be perfect. It's not crazy nutrient timing, carb this, protein that. It's small habitual changes that make for long lasting, sustainable results. And that's exactly what these challenges are all about. We actually have two challenges out there. We've got our 30 day transformation challenge, and we've also got our get lean challenge. It really just depends on where you are on your macro journey, but both challenges will help give you assistance with determining your macros, You'll get a private supervised Facebook group, video education, ebook, meal planning templates, daily workouts, daily motivational content, and daily education from both me and Roz. So if you're interested in regaining control of your nutrition, you can click on the link. I'll provide it in the show notes. It's a little bit long, but it's app.sugarwad.com forward slash marketplace forward slash own your eating. I know that's a little lengthy, so I'll put it in the show notes if you're interested. And if you use the code best hour, B-E-S-T-H-O-U-R, best hour, all caps, you'll save 10%. Of course, if you have any questions, you can DM me at best hour of their day. You can email me best hour of their day at gmail.com. But here's the deal. This works. You just have to do it, but we're here to support you. And it's not too late to still make 2020 great as far as your nutrition goes. So let's get it dialed in, enjoy the challenge and make some long lasting sustainable changes. 
Welcome back, best hour of their day, listeners. Very special guest, the doctor, the doctor of uh, carnivore, Dr. Paul Saladino. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, brother. I uh, was looking through some of your videos this past weekend, and I'm sure you've heard this joke before, but the guy that says don't eat any vegetables has the word salad in his name. I may have heard it once or twice. The tricky <laughs> thing is that I also have dino in my last name, and that could be dinosaur. So we'll, we'll salvage it with a dinosaur, and uh, a carnivorous dinosaur. Very well. Well, you and I were supposed to chat last week and you know scrolling through your instagram i see you got a better podcast than best hour of their day so congratulations on that Go <laughs> yeah experience. i had a i had a slight uh i had a slight conflict but you know here i am and i just hope that both of the podcasts reach people and and can help them you know it's funny because you just kind of reached out and you were like hey you know i have another podcast you didn't mention who it was and then i saw in your stories you know, just this, the new studio in Austin. And I was like, okay, <laughs> makes sense. Got bumped from Joe Rogan. Yeah, Hope Rogan I'm- is kind of a big deal. Um, yeah, so yeah, Rogan. When, is- did, when does that come out? Uh, probably in the next couple of days. I don't know when this one's going to release, but I believe Rogan will be out on uh, probably the 15th of October. Yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to it. I love catching almost all of his episodes, but I've been really binging on every podcast you've been on, including, I, I appreciate it. You sent me the PDF version of your book, but I was like, I got to listen to this. So I downloaded it on Audible and it's, it's really well. And for, for those that, you know, to, you know, kick things off, uh, Dr. Paul Saladino wrote The Carnivore Code. And you have quite a few other books on keto diet and, and a few other nutrition books, but Carnivore Code has kind of become your, your, your Abbey Road, if you will. Well, that's my first book, actually. The Carnivore Code is the only book I've written to this point. I imagine I will write other ones and I've got a cookbook in the works, but yeah, just uh, Carnivore Code is my only book. My bad. I thought I read that you had other books out there. Maybe, uh, maybe not. Okay. You sure you didn't write other books? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, maybe I did. I didn't know. Maybe I forgot about them all because they were so, so stressful, but Carnivore Code is the only is the only book I remember writing at this point. All right. Well, our listener base is primarily that of the CrossFit world. We got a lot of CrossFit affiliate owners, CrossFit coaches and members. I know you have done some jujitsu in the past and, and some other longer excursions. You said you hiked the Pacific Trail. Uh, what's that run from Mexico to Canada? Yeah, the Pacific Crest Trail goes through the, con- the sort of the, the Western divide there in the mountains between Mexico and Canada. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Do you have any experience with CrossFit? A little bit. It, every time I do it, it kicks my butt because I don't do it a lot, but I certainly like kettlebells. I like body weight movements and I like martial arts. So they're all cousins, I suppose. You know, I know you spoke with my buddy Elliot Marshall on his podcast, The Gospel of Fire. You guys talked about jujitsu. What belt are you currently? I never got belted because I only did nogi. And you know, a lot I, of nogi places, unless you do uh, 10th Planet, they don't belt you. I did jujitsu pretty solidly for about two years. I really love it. I've gotten pretty rusty. I just find it like a really humble pursuit. So I'm certainly, certainly not amazing at it, but I really like the pursuit of it. Yeah, I'm a longtime practitioner. That's how I know Elliot. And I, like both of you, prefer no gi. Who wants to be in those pajamas? You know, you get hot, you get sweaty, uh, people choke you out. So I, I'm a big fan of the no gi. And 
for those that aren't familiar with it, that was kind of one of your first steps into this carnivore journey, correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, when I was doing no gi jiu-jitsu in medical school, I had a lot of eczema at times and eczema on your wrists and your elbows and your knees when you're on the mats is a real bummer and it would get infected. And it was a little bit of a reminder that something wasn't quite right in my diet. And I didn't have a bad diet at the time, but I, I was eating pretty much an organic paleo diet and still had some pretty severe eczema that was limiting my ability to do the things that I wanted to do. So that was a real bummer and kind of caused me to continue to refine my diet and keep asking questions around what an optimal diet was for me and whether that was something that was scalable to other humans as well. Do you get sick of telling the same stories about this stuff? Cause you know, I've heard you on probably five or six different podcasts and I know you've been on dozens. Does it get old to you to tell the same story about how and why you started the carnivore diet? It's a little hard. I mean, I think that I'm, I'm buoyed by the, the fact that I know that every time I'm talking to somebody, somebody's interviewing me with a little bit different personality and there's a new audience that hasn't heard the story and it's meaningful to tell the story and it's meaningful to, to, to share the ideas I have. So that's cool. But I definitely appreciate original questions because I, at this point, yeah, it's been a lot of podcasts. <laughs> I, I can imagine. <laughs> Cause I've heard you on so many that I'm like, all right, this is where he's going to say this. And this is where he's going to say that. And, you know, I just wanted to give our listeners a little background. They follow me and I've been doing carnivore for coming up on about 90 days now. And cool. I'm ecstatic about it. I love it. You know, I'm, I'm screaming from the rooftops about it. I'm, I'm someone that, you know, like many people tried every diet, you know, as CrossFitters, we kind of run the gamut. We start with paleo, then we might do the zone, you know, macros are a big deal. And, you know, I, I always find these different things. And as someone, you know, I kind of refer to myself as chubby by nature. Like if I didn't work out and didn't eat right, I would be obese. And macros was really beneficial from a getting lean standpoint. But you always have that stress of tracking. You always have that stress of how do I fit this in? And one of the things I love about the carnivore diet is I, I don't feel guilty so long as I'm sticking to the plan. And it works a lot of people that way for a lot of people where if you prioritize what I and many others are coming to believe are the, the foundational foods for humans, that would be animal meat and organs from well-raised sources and you really only, and you think about plants on a toxicity spectrum, things get pretty easy and you can kind of just go by what you want and eat what you want. I, I don't even think carbohydrates are nearly as bad as a lot of people in the keto community say they are. I know a macro centered approach can be valuable if you cut fat or you do other things, but I think that if you're eating the foods that anthropologically, evolutionarily, humans seem designed to eat, you, you get the right macros almost accidentally without thinking about it so much. And and then also you get more nutrients along the way, which is the piece that a lot of people miss that you can track your macros all day, but if you don't track your micros, you're certainly sacrificing performance. And I don't know if I've ever heard anybody talk about micronutrient tracking. And there's so many micronutrients, you could never really track all of them, which is why eating animal organs and meat is so critical because if you are doing that, if you are eating those fundamental foods for humans, you will get, you will be tracking your micros in the proper way you get the right balance, especially if you're getting animal fat. We can talk about all the unique things in animal fat, but 
I think it's valuable to check your macros, but just as important is make sure you're getting all the micronutrients you need because that's really, I think, the magic. That's the special sauce of what allows humans to thrive is micronutrients. We need calories, but you also need micronutrients. And I think a lot of people are deficient because they're not eating the right foods. Yeah, as someone that really kind of made it their lifestyle to eat four servings of Cinnamon Toast Crunch every day as part of their macro tracking, you know, I look back and realize, okay, I might have gotten lean, but, you know, there's only so much Cinnamon Toast Crunch that's actually good for you. And one thing I like about the carnivore diet is I feel like I'm only putting stuff in my body that's actually good for me. You know, with, with macros, you can have a cookie and you can fit things in and and one of the things I really appreciate that you put out there is, you know, preaching about quality of life. If you need that cookie, have it. If you need that glass of wine, have it. But I think for a lot of people, specifically in the CrossFit world, we eat, you know, CrossFitters are like shoving down Sour Patch Kids post-workout because they want to replace their glycogen and all that. It's like, all right, like I get it. You worked out. But is that really what's good for your body? And by eating only meat right now, I feel like I'm not putting anything negative in my body. Are you getting any organs in there? So on my list of things to talk about, I just ordered some liver and heart. I couldn't find any locally. So I found this company online called Seven Sons, I believe. And, you know, I know your company, Heart and Soul, that CEO um, has powder, but I'm a big fan, like you say, of if I can get, I don't mind. I mean, I'm, I grew up with Jewish grandma and, you know, she made chopped liver all the time and I love it. So my wife knows that I ordered this liver and heart and I, you know, I don't do anything small. I ordered it in bulk. I have like 15 pounds of each coming. Love it. And, and, um, and you know, my wife is the cook of the house. She's like, how are you going to make that? I was like, well, good thing I got a call with Dr. Paul today because I'm, <laughs> I'm anxious to hear your recommendations for, for this liver and heart that's about to show up at my doorstep uh, Wednesday. Yeah, that's amazing. I love it. So just for people listening, if they're not really familiar what we're talking about, our ancestors evolutionarily currently living hunter-gatherer tribes did not just eat the tenderloin or the backstrap or the ribeye. They ate the whole animal nose to tail. And there are unique nutrients in things like liver and heart and pancreas and spleen. And it goes really the whole animal, even the brain or the eyes have unique nutrients. And so I'm a huge proponent of returning or at least thinking about where we've come from as humans returning to these ways of eating in the most reasonable way for humans. If you can get fresh organs, liver, heart is a great start. Do that. I think there are even unique nutrients in things like stomach or tripe or intestines or uh, spleen, pancreas, kidney that a lot of people can't get beyond stomach, uh, beyond liver and heart. But um, that's why we do the stuff at Heart and Soil. So heartandsoil.co. I'm sorry, I said soil, didn't I? Yeah, everybody makes that mistake. Heart and Soil because we source from regenerative farms. So the soil is a really important piece of, of our ethical mission too. But that's why we make the desiccated organs and the capsules for people who can't do that. I think for CrossFitters, it would be huge. Talk about micronutrient tracking. If you took encapsulated organ supplements, it would be huge. If you can get the fresh stuff, fantastic. Do that as well or do it um, in place of the desiccated. Whatever gets you there is what you want to do. But you need to know that your ancestors ate organs, nose to tail, the Hadza, the Ikung, the San, the Yanomono, the Kawimeno, all the indigenous cultures that have been currently studied do the same thing. They don't waste anything, unique nutrients in there, things like folate or biotin or copper or selenium or any of these things that are uniquely more represented, more robustly represented in the organs than they are in the muscle meat. But I'm definitely going to, yeah, go ahead. I'll go, well, I'm going to order some as well, because like you said, 
it's not that easy to find some of this stuff. I mean, I'm, I live close to Denver and I couldn't find anybody selling this organ meat, you know, so I had to, you know, find somebody in Iowa that's shipping it, but I'm definitely going to check out your product. And I heard you talk to Elliot. It's, you know, it's basically food ground up into powder. There's none of the additives or preservatives. So I'm, I'm excited to try that out. And I can tell you, I know how good I feel right now. And I'm so excited because I'm not, you know, you, you talk about five tiers in your book and I'm probably like tier two and a half. And right. I'm excited to take it to tier four and then five. And I, yeah, I I'm just that, so excited to feel good. Yeah, I think you'll have to let me know how you do. But invariably, we hear from people all the time doing fresh organs or desiccated organs that they, they feel even better with these and, and all sorts of improvements. So that's really what it's all about. Like you said, that quality of life. Um, there are lots of ways to prepare fresh liver. Some people just pan sear it on both sides. Um, I, I eat it raw. Uh, I saw I you did that yeah. in your day of, um, you kind of threw out the, on, on uh, your YouTube channel, and I believe it's Carnivore MD. Uh, the YouTube you channel is just under, yeah, Paul Saladino MD, yeah. Okay, I, you had a great video for those listening of just kind of what you eat in a day laid out for you. Yeah. And I think you, you did like a liver shooter, if I was correct. Yeah, yeah. At the Heart and Soil website, heartandsoil.co, there's an About Us page, which has videos of how I work out, um, how I play outside and how I eat just so people give a sense of like the, the weirdness that is the way that I live, but I love it. And yeah, I eat a lot, I eat a lot of the organs raw. They're frozen and thawed. So I've never had a problem. I get them from well uh, raised animals at really high quality grass fed, grass finished regenerative farms. And so that's been fine. Anytime a physician is talking about raw food of any sort, there's always a caveat that there is some chance of, uh, infection, but, or, or, you know, some maybe GI issues, but I've never had a problem. It's just how I've found to do it easiest. And I'll cut it up into small pieces and then just do a shooter of the liver or the spleen or the pancreas with water. But you can also blanch it or you can pan sear it. You can take liver and mix it with things that are spices. Although, you know, it's interesting. People will say like liver and onions, but there certainly are people who are sensitive to onions. One of the guys I work with here on the team He's pretty darn sensitive to onions. If he eats liver with onions, he is not going to feel good. That's kind of what we're talking about with the whole carnivore, carnivore-ish movement is, hey, realize that plants are on a spectrum of toxicity. And if, if this plant isn't making you feel good, don't do it that way. So I like to recommend, or at least gently suggest people start very simple and then go from there in terms of their food and see what is helping them feel the best. So in your case, yeah, you could pan sear it. You could make pate if you wanted, but um, I just like it simple and raw and down the hatch it goes and it's great. Or desiccated organs are easy too. Well, I'm going to reach out to my mom and ask her for, you know, my grandmother's not around. How did grandma used to make that chopped liver? And um, I'm so excited for it. You know, and hearing you talk about fruits and vegetables, you know, my wife is big into nutrition. She's taking a natural nutrition course right now. And, you know, it, it's certainly not arguing, but we, you know, we, I see her plates every night. She sees my plates. And I said, have you noticed I haven't really been farting in like three months? Isn't that a big deal? Right? Like, Isn't that amazing? You know? and, and I didn't really think about it until, you know, hearing you talk about, you know, the, the seeds are basically like the baby and the leaves are the next thing. And I'm like, yeah, like I, I was cramming in broccoli because I thought it was good for me or spinach and kale. And I was fart like I was just nonstop farting. I really don't fart anymore. I mean, it's it's pretty incredible. 
I would agree with you completely. Um, anyone who reads my book will know that I was a vegan for seven months, uh, many, many years ago, 15 years ago, and I had horrible gas. It's pretty comical to me that in plant-based communities, who I respect, uh, these farts are almost celebrated. Like that's a good thing. It's no, it's it's not a good thing to be farting. That's <laughs> something is wrong. <laughs> it's indigested material, undigested material passing into the into the small intestine or further down the small intestine into the colon. And farts are no fun for anyone. I mean, they're fun when you were six years old or eight years old, but your wife doesn't want to smell it. Your girlfriend doesn't want to smell it. You know, women are, you know, mortified by it. And it's, it is, I agree with you. It's, it's very nice to have a quiescent gut and, and to not fart and to just, to just have a, a gut and a belly, a tummy that feels good and quiet. And, you know, you're not worried about farting in the middle of a CrossFit workout or uh, when you're sitting in the car with somebody or in a quiet lecture hall or something, it's, it's amazing. And, um, to me, it just, it feels right. People always ask me, isn't meat really hard to digest? And I think that's such a misconception. Meat is the easiest thing for your body to digest. The acid in your stomach just absolutely digests it. And you can testify to this as well. I imagine that when you start eating meat, your poop becomes more modest. You don't have all this undigested fiber passing out your butt and you can, you have little tiny poops and they're a lot smaller than the amount of meat you ate because most of that meat gets assimilated into your body. <laughs> One of yeah. the things that's fascinating is, yeah, if you, and nobody's going to do this, but you can imagine, you know, you weigh the amount of fiber that goes into your mouth and pretty much the same amount of fiber is going to come out the back end. Like it's not really nutrients for anyone. Not the, not, there's no nutrients in there. And in fact, fiber depletes your body of nutrients in many ways. But when you, if you measure like the amount of meat that goes into your body and the weight of your poop, it's a lot smaller. Most of that does get absorbed. And in fact, a, a large amount of our poop at the risk of, I'll, I'll, I'll change the subject here in a moment, guys, I promise. Now this is what we talk about. On is show. bacteria. So, you know, some of the bacteria that are always growing in your gut are incorporated into that poop. So it's not all, it's not all, you know, the food you eat that comes out, but most of the meat that humans eat gets digested and absorbed and assimilated because it's so bioavailable and that's, that's the key. Uh, that, if that's not a testament to the power of these foods and the fact that humans should be eating them, I don't know what is. Yeah, I'd say when I first started, I think a lot of people go through that kind of week or two where you have some diarrhea. And nowadays, I mean, I'm pretty regular. I've had a poop first thing in the morning for probably the last 20 years. But man, I get up and it's just a couple like plop, 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 and I'm good to go. <laughs> And then, you know, the only time my stomach gets messed up these days is when I just overdo a meal and I'll have like dinner right into some pork rinds. And, you know, at that point, sometimes I'm like, all right, I have to go to the bathroom pretty badly. But, you know, that's probably more of a case of I'm eating more than I need than, you know, my body not being able to handle, you know, the meat. Probably not. Every once in a while in the beginning, as people are adjusting, lots and lots of fat can sometimes cause people to have loose stool. Pork rinds are kind of an interesting food. You know, it's this pork skin that's often fried or baked. That can sometimes cause weird issues. But yeah, for the majority the pork of the time, rinds. people don't have a problem with it. Sorry. So you, you think it's the pork rind? So, you know, as someone that used to snack at night, you know, I'm like the Netflix and chill kind of guy with my wife. And, you know, that's what I would have my in, enjoyable treat at night. And, and people ask like, well, with carnivore, isn't it boring? And I say, you, you kind of just have to find different flavor profiles and, you know, you're not going to have anything sweet. But for me, 
a bowl of pork rinds is kind of like having a bowl of chips and it's relaxing at the end of the day. But I, I think you're probably right. It's probably more the pork rinds than I'm having too much of, you know, fat at, at any given moment. That's my suspicion. The other thing I would suggest gently is that using food as entertainment is a recipe for problems no matter what. Certainly, this is not to say that we should all be ascetic and, and, and forego any pleasure with food, but at the same time, um, if we look for comfort or entertainment in food, it's going to handicap our efforts and it's all about what's your goal, what's your highest quality of life. and. I think that's the problem people run into. Anytime anyone asks me, isn't it boring? I think, well, if you're using food as entertainment, maybe it's not going to be as entertaining as your other food. But what's your goal? Why are you even interested in a carnivore diet in the first place? Most people are interested because they have at least some inkling that entertainment is not their highest quality of life, that they want to perform in the gym or they want to spend time with their family or they want to do better at this sport or that sport or climb a mountain or hunt. And so it's like this, these conflicting ideas and we just don't need to choose. And it doesn't have to be one goal at any one time that stays, you know, in, in stone, it can be shifting. But if your goal in the moment is entertainment, then yeah, use food as entertainment, but understand that that's not serving your other goals in the same way. So I find meat and organs to be incredibly enjoyable, nutritive, but I don't use food as entertainment a whole lot. I get enjoyment out of it, but I use other things as entertainment. I go to work out, I go in the sun, I go play outside with my friends in the, in the water. And it's not to say that I can't share community with people over food, but just, I don't allow food to rule my priorities. I'm going to use food as fuel because that's just been how I have solved the quality of life equation consistently in my own life. But that's just a point to imagine. Now you bring up a good point that if you want to get creative, there are lots of ways to do this, that, that can be really, that can help work and you can find some middle ground as well. Um, and if people read the book, they'll realize, as you suggested, there are multiple tiers, in my opinion, to what a carnivore or carnivore-ish diet is. And in the book, I do discuss what, um, what plant foods might be more and less toxic. And I do think you can have sweet things on a carnivore-ish diet. I eat honey most days and find that I feel really good with honey. In fact, doing long-term ketogenic carnivore eventually didn't feel amazing to me. I had kind of electrolyte issues that were very difficult to solve, no matter how much sodium or magnesium or potassium I added. And I had palpitations and I just felt like I was a little bit too cold all year round in San Diego, California, which is where I lived before Austin, Texas. So there, I think there are issues to long-term ketogenic diets for people, though they can be useful in the short term. So I, I really don't like to try and communicate a dogmatic approach to it, but Within plant foods, I do think there is a spectrum of plant toxicity and eating the least toxic plants is going to serve most people better. So if you wanted something sweet at night, it's not the end of the world. If you want to eat a couple of cherries or some raspberries or something, if you want something crunchy, you know, if you want to have a couple of slices of carrot or a cucumber, that's not the end of the world. If you can do okay with pork rinds, maybe, but you could get some jerky. There's lots of ways to work around it, but just always understand what is your highest quality of life? What's your goal here? be aware that using food as entertainment often is a slippery slope for most people. Totally agree. And I definitely improved over the 90 days realizing that, you know, previously it might be okay. It's, you know, nine o'clock at night, we're watching, you know, episodes of the office and I'm going to have some peanut butter or, you know, some sort of treat. 
where now I no longer feel like I need that. It's, you know, when I, when I want something, it's a, it's a bowl of pork rinds. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you just feel more satiated at all times. And you do have a different outlook on food where it is, you know, this is what I need to support my life versus this has to be my life, you know, and, and it, for most people, they revolve their life around food where, you know, at 42 years old, I'm, everyone I believe struggles with it, but this is probably the first time that I've really felt like, wow, like I don't need to, to snack and I don't need that treat at the end of the day. So I, I 100% am on board with what you're saying there. Uh, a question that comes up a lot when I talk about it is, you know, is this, is carnivore the same as ketosis? And I understand that it's not the same, but what role does ketosis play in the carnivore diet? Because I know for you, for example, you know, you mentioned some fruit, you mentioned some vegetables. You've, I don't know if you still are, but you've talked about experimenting with honey. So where, where is it? Is it like a Venn diagram where there's some overlap? You know, what, what aspect of this is, you know, is pushed by ketosis? I see carnivore completely different than keto. Keto is about macros. Keto is about limiting carbohydrates and protein to some extent to achieve levels of venous beta-hydroxybutyrate, which are measurable. Though some people who eat predominantly animal-based diets will go into ketosis, ketones are not the goal with a carnivore diet, in my opinion. Recapitulating, remembering how our ancestors have eaten is. It's in my version, in my idea, it's more of paleo 2.0. Um, I think that understanding where our ancestors have come from is valuable, but that a paleo diet didn't quite figure out that things like nuts and seeds and leafy greens were not good for humans. Our ancestors didn't eat these unless they were starving. They're not that great. And a paleolithic diet excludes dairy and grains and legumes, which is a great start because I don't think those are awesome for humans either. But leafy greens, man, kale does not love you back. And you found that out. Uh, in terms of your your gas as well, and so did I and many people. And furthermore, like I just think that a carnivore diet, carnivore-ish type diet, is about re-asking the question again, reimagining what foods are best for humans, and that will include carbohydrates for some people. If you want to make it a ketogenic version of a carnivore diet, you can do that quite easily, and that can be valuable for some people. But like I said. I want people to understand that long-term that can create problems and don't get stuck in the dogma. It doesn't have to be keto. It's not just a ketogenic diet. It's a reimagining, a remembering of what our ancestors have eaten and which foods are more and less prioritized. That's the key. Which foods are more and less valuable for our ancestors? Leafy greens are garbage. They're not valuable. They're never eaten. But we've been told that they're the best things since sliced bread. And it's like, wait a minute, no, no, no. Well-raised meat and organs are what our ancestors always favored. There's some great papers looking at Hadza of hunter-gatherers in Tanzania, and they only eat five general types of food. They eat honey, meat and organs, berries, baobab fruit, and tubers. And they asked a group, I believe it was 60 or 70 of the Hadza hunter-gatherers, they asked them, what are your favorite foods? And both the men and the women consistently ranked honey as the favorite. The men said meat was their second, and then the women kind of tied between meat, berries, and baobab for second, third, and fourth. But both the men and the women said tubers were their least favorite food. And there's lots of ethnographic observations that women stop digging for tubers when meat is available in camp. 
they don't want to eat a bunch of fibrous tubers that they have to spit out the fiber. It's survival food. It's fallback food. And nowhere in that list is leafy greens. They don't go around eating leaves. That's going to cause diarrhea and gas for almost everyone on the planet. But we've been told they're so good for us. And it's just a total Pied Piper tale. It's the wrong way to think about it. Those are not the foods we want. But fruit, fruit does have a place in the human diet. If we desire it, we shouldn't fear it. So it's a real different perspective than a ketogenic diet. And I, I fear that many in the carnivore community get overly dogmatic about ketogenic diets and ketosis. And as I've spoken about carbohydrates, many have you know, criticized my, my thinking and I'm fine with that. That's open discussion. But I think for the most part, eating a diet of meat and organs with some less toxic carbohydrate sources that's freaking rocket fuel, man. That's, that's crossing all sorts of party lines and non-dogmatism and people feel really good with that. How much honey are you taking in now? On a daily basis, I would say maybe 70, 70 to 100 grams of carbohydrates is honey. It'll depend. Oh, so that's a, I mean, a significant amount of carbs. Yeah. Yeah. From, yeah. from honey. I don't, I don't fear it. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I first started carnivore, I, I, I've used my fitness style for like 2,000 consecutive days and I just left my macros as they were and, and kind of tracked very loosely. I was far more concerned with am I being strict carnivore, uh, you know, and strict being, you know, just am I eating only meat? And after listening, I think it was in your book or on one of the podcasts, you kind of say, hey, if, if you kind of want a rough idea of what to hit, you know, body weight in grams of protein, equal number of grams of fat, you know, so for those listening, you're basically getting double the calories from fat than protein. So it's certainly not a, like you mentioned, keto is typically like your proteins at about 20% of your caloric intake. And I think people jump on the keto bandwagon because it sounds fun and interesting, but that's really just a lot of butter. It's a lot of butter and a lot of fat, which doesn't have a whole lot of other important nutrients. So, hey, it's great. Ketosis is interesting for people who have underlying mitochondrial dysfunction. Using ketones to get acetyl-CoA in the mitochondria is fantastic, um, but it doesn't solve the underlying problem. And eventually it can lead to nutrient deficiencies. Fat is fantastic. There are a lot of unique things in animal fat, but a lot of people will also construct ketogenic diets out of nut fat. And um, you know, things like almonds or peanuts or things like this, which is a horrible idea in my opinion, because those are not really that digestible for humans and not that nutritious in the long term at all. So you can use ketosis if you have a child with recalcitrant epilepsy or a brain injury or any of these things that can be really challenging for your brain. But long term, I think most people do better without being so dogmatic about it. Certainly, cyclic ketosis is great. Intermittent fasting, fantastic. Uh, longer fasting, awesome. But um, you know, getting really stuck on chasing ketones doesn't get many people very far. Is it tough being at the forefront of this? I imagine you get a lot of people that are like, this guy's crazy. I think uh, it's, it's becoming more and more fun. But at this point, everybody thinks I'm crazy. Even the carnivores think I'm crazy because I won't adhere to dogma. So, you know, in the beginning, you start talking about carnivore and people who are advocates for carbohydrates think you're crazy and vegans think you're crazy and the mainstream medical establishment thinks you're crazy. And then you're talking about carnivore with carbs and then the carnivore community thinks you're crazy. It's like, well, that's cool, man. I'm just forging my own path. And I think that if it's valuable for people, I, I hope that it can improve their quality of life. But uh, I've got a feeling that, uh, that more and more people are going to understand it. Now, what's tricky is that nuance is hard to communicate in today's world. And 
even though I wrote a book, a lot of people are not going to take the time and read that book, which is probably why audiobooks are great. But even so, I mean, I do two hour podcasts on my podcast, which is called Fundamental Health. And a lot of people will write me and say, that's too long. I'm thinking, man, put a lot of effort into that two hour podcast. There's a lot of good information there. You can't take two hours. And granted, not everybody's going to be interested in every topic that I discuss, but if somebody won't listen to a two hour podcast over the course of a week, how are they going to read a 320 page book like the carnivore code, but nuance is where it's at. The devil's in the details. And I just think that we are humans are complex and it's very hard to say a soundbite that encapsulates it, but a ketogenic diet, you can say carbs are bad and people get it. And the carnivore diet, you can say plants are bad and people get it, but there's way more nuance there. And, but people don't really want the nuance. They just want black and white. Tell me what to do. And then when you step outside of that and you try and add some details and some layering, people get kind of triggered and they don't quite know how to follow it. But with a little bit more work, I think people end up being much more, um, uh, much more, their outcomes are much better. Well, I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that has attracted me to you specifically in this, in this world, because I started on a random Tuesday. I, um, I saw Rogan did it in January, World Carnivore Month, and then someone else that's been on the podcast, Mark Bell, uh, was doing 100 days. And, you know, it was kind of in my peripheral. And it was one Tuesday morning. My wife and I were having breakfast. I was having bacon and eggs. And I was like, you know, typical, like, hey, when we finish the food that's in the house, I'm going to start the carnivore diet. And she was like, stop being a little bitch and just start today. You know, like typical how my wife you know, treats me. And, um, <laughs> I like your wife. I, I was like, damn, she's right. And I just, I was, and then I put it out there. I was like, I'm going to go seven days. And any one of my friends and, you know, or followers that had done it were like seven days isn't enough. And they were absolutely right. It took about 30 days to really feel some sort of like shift in the second gear and then another 30 days. And it was, it wasn't until about last week that, you know, for, for those listening that are CrossFitters, like, man, I feel like my gas tank just keeps replenishing itself during workouts. It's unbelievable how good I feel during workouts. So, you know, my point is throughout this, I didn't really have any guidance. And then I stumble upon you. And one thing I really appreciate about you is that you don't have that dogma. You talk about quality of life. Like, for example, I have coffee. I know you'll say, I don't have coffee for, you know, all these sciencey reasons. And, but if you like it, have it. And, and I think that's one thing I really appreciate. So I hope you don't change that. And, and you mentioned like, for some people listening to your book might be too much. Well, if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested, buy the book, listen on Audible, skip to section four. I know CrossFitters don't care about why it's working so long as it works. So skip to section four, jump on one of the tiers and get started. So if I had to give any advice about your book, I, I did that originally. Then I went back and listened to understand it all. And I do have one more question about that, but I, but I definitely recommend to the listeners that that can be their course of action if they're interested in doing this. Let me say that. Yeah. And you know, I wrote that in the introduction that if you just want to know how to do it, go to chapter 12, which is the beginning of section four, as you're saying. And so the book has practical stuff. The first 11 chapters of the book are the nuts and bolts about why it, why I think all these things. And, you know, there's, discussions of plant toxins and there's debunking of myths like meat will cause cancer or elevated LDL is problematic for everyone. And, you know, you need fiber to have a healthy poop, which is false. And 
all this stuff. So there's a lot of myth debunking. And then in chapter 12, I kind of, you know, open the curtains and show everyone, well, this is how I would construct a carnivore diet. And then chapter 13 is, um, you know, common pitfalls. There's a frequently asked question. So the end of the book is all the nuts and bolts about how to do it. I think that probably a lot of people just skip straight there. Like you, they start doing it and then they go, actually, I want to read about oxalates or I want to read about lectins or I want to read about isothiocyanates or any of those things. And so You there, Doc? I think I lost. Hey, Doc, you there? Hmm. What's going on? All right, my friends. Well, it looked like Dr. Paul dropped off. I can't get a hold of him to get back on, but I promise you we're going to get him on for part two of this awesome episode. Like I've said, I love the carnivore diet. It's working for me. Check out his book, Carnivore Code. Listen to his podcast, Fundamental Health. Check out his company, heartandsoil.co. And if you have questions on carnivore, please hit me up. It's working for me. I'm super pleased with it. If you have questions, shoot us a DM, best hour of their day, or shoot us an email, best hour of their day at gmail.com. Hopefully that first part was informative for you guys. Super smart dude. And I'll have him back on because I definitely want to touch on things like LDL and cholesterol in, uh, in another episode. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. All right. Carnivore MD, Dr. Paul Saladino is back. What happened last week? A truck hit your internet cables? Yeah. So in the middle of our conversation, I'm sure I was mid- sentence. I live in this older house in Austin, Texas, in the kind of a low-lying section in the ground. And the, there was a power cord across the road that was fairly low. And a large truck that was coming into our house to make a delivery for hardened soil hit the power cord in the middle of our podcast. So I was mid-sentence and all of a sudden I hear this screeching sound as the pipe gets pulled off the house and then everything goes dark and just gets ripped out. So we're back. I knew something was up because it was just dark. No text, no email. And then eventually I heard from you. How long did it take for the power to go back on? 48 hours. Wow. So, hey, maybe that's a little peaceful, like no Wi-Fi for, for 48 hours. It was just stressful because we had to just keep running the business and I had to keep doing my stuff. So it was fine. It's one of those things like bump in the road, you get over it. Well, the one last thing I wanted to talk about, and you did a great job on the Rogan podcast talking about it, but our listeners are not that smart. And I really want to dig into the, probably the most asked question to you of, is this healthy? You know, it's bad for you, sodium, cholesterol, etc. So I actually have some blood results of mine, but I know your LDL is in like the 500s, which people are going to think is insane. Yeah. People think that's insane if you're working from a model that's antiquated, right? So the model of heart disease based around LDL, which so many of us have been taught for the last 60 years is that LDL cholesterol causes atheroma or atherosclerosis in the artery. But myself and many other people are beginning to call this into question. There are so many data points 
that begin to call this into question. The first thing to know about my lipids is that I do not have a genetic condition called familial hypercholesterolemia. I do not have that. I recently shared on Twitter and in a video that I posted today on Instagram, my lipids from 2014, and they look essentially normal. This is when I was eating a paleo type diet. So I was eating meat, but also some plants and probably more olive oil, which is a monounsaturated oil. And so my ratio of saturated fat to monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fat in my diet was probably lower. Nevertheless, my LDL was 126 milligrams per deciliter. So interestingly, over the couple of years that I've been doing a strict carnivore diet with nose to tail and organs, or even more recently incorporating some uh, non-toxic carbohydrates, occasional fruit and honey into my uh, mostly animal-based nose to tail diet, my LDL cholesterol has gone up and up and up. Now, again, mainstream medicine says you're going to die of a heart attack. And I say, I don't believe it's quite that simple. And if we just think about it intuitively, why would nature have designed us with a lipoprotein particle like low density lipoprotein that has indispensable functions in the human body, moving uh, cholesterol, backbones, and triglycerides around the body for cell membranes, for hormones. No one listening to this has testosterone or estrogen. Um, essentially, without the carriage or the, the, the particles, the cholesterol backbone that is carried in LDL to your testicles or your ovaries or your adrenal glands, a lot of the hormones we use are steroid hormone-based. Cholesterol is a steroid hormone. So colloquially, cholesterol gets associated with lipoproteins, but we're talking about buses, LDL, HDL, and then other buses that move cholesterol, which is a different molecule, and triglycerides around the body. And those buses are identified by bus routes. LDL has a specific bus route. HDL has a specific bus route. But that LDL bus has been associated, keyword there is associated, with increased rates of cardiovascular disease. But not always does it show that relationship. So there are many data points that that break that relationship, but some that do show that relationship. If people listen to me on Rogan, what they saw me show, and I can show the same graphics if you want, and many others that illustrate the same thing, what is if you, if you take the canonical relationship between LDL and cardiovascular disease, and you stratify it by any marker that gives you a sense of your metabolic health, whether that's fasting insulin, HDL, or triglycerides, so we're adding another variable to this equation, you start to see a very different relationship between LDL and cardiovascular disease incidence, which I think flies in the face of the prevailing hypothesis that the LDL particle, a particle that's indispensable to human life, actually causes atherosclerosis on its own. So I think that a more accurate analogy here would be thinking about wood and fires and building a log cabin. You can have a bunch of wood stacked up in the corner in a garage or a carport and it's dry wood. And that might be LDL. Unless there's a spark, that LDL is not going to ignite. Wood doesn't generally ignite on its own. LDL doesn't cause atherosclerosis on its own. In fact, if you want to build a house, having a lot of wood could be a good thing. So there are many, including myself, who believe that in the setting of metabolic health, that is the absence of insulin resistance, having more LDL in your body might actually be beneficial. And there are studies to corroborate this, looking at possible immune function for the LDL particle. So you can think about dry wood doesn't spontaneously combust. Well, what is the spark? I think the spark is metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance, this word I keep coming back to. In the context of a fire, having a whole bunch of wood around is a bad idea. 
but did the wood start the fire or was there something else that sparked the fire? And I think there's something else that sparks the fire. Again, this is a crude analogy, but it is illustrating that context matters. Where is your dry wood? Is it sitting right next to a wood burning stove that could spark the wood and light it on fire? Or is your dry wood somewhere that's safe? Are you metabolically healthy? And so when you take the Framingham data or the data from the Quebec uh, cardiovascular study or any of these other studies, and you stratify LDL versus cardiovascular disease with a marker, of, uh, with a marker that gives you a sense of insulin sensitivity or metabolic health, you see a very different relationship. LDL, in fact, does not have a direct correlation with cardiovascular disease in people who are metabolically healthy. Um, I don't know if you're gonna post the video. If you let me screen share, I'll show you a really cool study that illustrates this. You go to that screen share tab and yeah. Try now. Okay. So this is from the New England Journal of Medicine in April of 1996. I did not show this study on Rogan hyperinsulinemia as an independent risk factor for ischemic heart disease. And so if you skip down to the actual graphics, you can see here there's a pretty clear relationship between fasting insulin across the x-axis and the odds ratio of ischemic heart disease. So this is the graphic that I would have people focus on. They, did, um, they, did, they looked at total to HDL cholesterol, they looked at triglycerides, and they looked at overall ApoB, which is LDL, in these tertiles. So they divided the total fasting insulin levels into three, uh, three quadrants. People in the lowest fasting insulin, now this fasting insulin of less than 12 is actually not that low. Nevertheless, this lowest fasting insulin, whether you had high or low ApoB, which is essentially LDL, your odds ratio of ischemic heart disease wasn't that much different. But if you had a high fasting insulin, which is an indicator of metabolic dysfunction, you can see that even people with low LDL were at more risk, and those with high LDL were at a significantly increased risk. So I'm not debating that LDL or apolipoprotein B-containing particles participate in the process of atheroma formation, but do they cause it on their own? I would argue strongly no. Context matters. Context matters a lot, a huge amount. And you can see that with this really clear illustration that by fasting insulin, if you stratify LDL, which is apolipoprotein B, by um, insulin in relation to ischemic heart disease risk, the lowest fasting insulin, that is those people who are most metabolically healthy, are at a much, much lower risk, suggesting that there is a third variable. So let's go back from the beginning and I'll explain it one more time, make sure it makes sense to people. If you are worried about a high LDL, you must assume or you must accept the notion that LDL itself causes atherosclerosis, or you have to think about your context. If you are someone who is diabetic, having a high LDL is a bad thing. But did the diabetes cause the high LDL? Did the high LDL cause the diabetes? It's probably the diabetes causing the high LDL. You can fix the diabetes and that LDL contextually will look very differently. If you deny or you reject the assertion that LDL itself causes atherosclerosis, and why would it from an evolutionary perspective, it doesn't make any sense, then a rising LDL in the setting of continued metabolic health, which I have because I have low fasting insulin, presumably which you have with low inflammatory markers, low fasting insulin, a rising LDL is not a problem. It's a completely different context. 
And then if you just take it back to an intuitive level, we all, most people listening to this will accept that this way of eating is essentially mirroring what our ancestors did. Why would an ancestral pattern of eating kill us? And another thing that I mentioned on Rogan is that when you fast, when you stop eating, LDL also goes up. So why would fasting raise a particle that's killing you? Again, it just doesn't make sense evolutionarily that these things would trend in this direction. And there are so many data points that introduce the notion that there's a third variable, that context matters here. But Western medicine misses this. And to be truthful with you, I don't blame them <laughs> because there are lots of other good studies that suggest that the vast majority of our population is metabolically unhealthy. There's one study that I always talk about suggesting that up to 88% of our population has one metric of metabolic dysfunction. And when the population looks like 88% are unhealthy, I don't blame Western medicine for assuming everyone is. But people that do CrossFit, people that follow me or follow you are probably in the elite 10 to 20% of people who fall outside of that metabolically unhealthy 80 to 88%. Does that make sense? Yes, And when you have a different context, right? If you are an elite individual, if you are living in an ancestral way and your lipids go in a way that doesn't look good to your doctor, does it mean the same as lipids going in that direction in someone who's diabetic or metabolically unhealthy? I would argue no, based on these contextual factors. So that kind of makes sense. I'm happy to break any of that down further if you would like. No, I mean, it's a little confusing and I'm sure the smarter listeners are gonna grasp it. I had blood done about 90 days into my carnivore journey. I'm anxious to see what you would tell me. I don't know that I have all of the markers you want, but I certainly have my LDL, HDL, triglycerides, and total cholesterol. Let's start with those. So let's see what we got. So my cholesterol during that time went from my LDL, went from 149 to 205. Okay. So what this chart is telling me is it's borderline high. Then... My HDL stayed in my optimized zone, according to Inside Tracker, of 69. Okay, so your HDL is moderately high. Moderately high. Is it, it, according to this, it's in my good zone. Are you telling me that's moderately high? HDL is a tricky one. It's, that's a fine HDL, right? People seem to have a, it's, it's not a, that's not a bad HDL. I mean, I mean, moderately high in a good way for your HDL. HDL is not a perfect metric. Low HDL can be an indicator of metabolic unhealth. High HDL is tricky, okay? So your HDL stayed there. What did your triglycerides do? My triglycerides went in February from 43 to September 85. Okay, so they're still, they're all within the same realm. So I would say, you know, 43 to 85 is an increase, but 85 is still pretty low for triglycerides. So what you have to think about is your metabolic health. What I would have loved to have seen for you is a fasting insulin, and they probably didn't get a fasting insulin. Um, let me see what that might be under. Would that be under metabolism and weight control? Let's see. Lipid group, um, total cholesterol, sugar group, metabolism. I have, so this is just my sugar metabolism and energy, glucose. So my latent glucose is just listed as 86 mg over DL. So that's a fasting glucose of 86. That's fine. But and they probably my, didn't do a fasting insulin. What's HbA1c? Hemoglobin A1c, it's an average of your blood sugars over the last 90 days. What does that say? 
Okay, did it change at all? Do you have a previous? It went from 5.2 to 5.4. Yeah, when you go zero carb, your fasting glucose is, I mean, your, your hemoglobin A1C might go up a little bit. So neither of them is particularly high. So, you know, those, those lipids, again, this is not medical advice, but those lipids don't concern me because you remain in the group with moderately high HDL, which is good, very low triglycerides. I bet your fasting insulin went down or stayed the same, and, but I bet that both of your fasting insulin levels would have been very low. Another useful metric might have been HSCRP, um, an inflammatory marker, something like that. I got that. Okay. HSCRP, 0.3. Both times? Yes. So your inflammation was low both times. I've got WBC, neutrophils, basophils, any of those important? I mean, not particularly germane to our current conversation, but I think the take-home message for people is if you are eating an ancestrally consistent diet and your LDL goes up, I think that it's really, really not for, it's, it's really, really important to question the mainstream notion that that is a bad thing. So I've heard over and over people go to their doctors on carnivore or carnivore-ish diets, and they say, I lost weight, my depression got better, my eczema got better, my libido got better, I'm sleeping better. And, um, and the doctor looks at them and go, that's amazing, what are you doing? And they go, well, I'm eating an all-meat diet. And he goes, you gotta stop that immediately because your LDL went up. And, and they, they kind of scratch their head and they go, wait a minute, I just told you everything got better, but my lab work got, quote, worse. And the, the, I guarantee you, I can't guarantee this, but I am very, pretty confident that most physicians, if they are looking at your labs or, or anyone listening to this labs, will not look at triglycerides, will not look at HDL, will not look at things contextually, will not look at HSCRP or fasting insulin. They will just get hyper fixated on that LDL number. And in my opinion, that is a travesty because there is really not solid evidence that LDL causes atherosclerosis in and of itself. It has valuable roles in the human body. It's about the context. It's about the context. No, and I think that's important. And I think that's a lesson that you're doing a great job spreading out there. And I think in general, as physicians become a little more progressive and, and look at these things, hopefully that's something that will spread. So we're either not being told to go on a plant-based diet or take this medication. Well, the thing that's funny is that I could show you exactly how to lower your LDL, you know? I think it's your ratio of saturated fat to polyunsaturated fat. If I go downstairs, I don't have any polyunsaturated fat in my house, right? But if I go to the store and buy canola oil or corn oil, and I just start drinking corn oil, um, I can pretty much guarantee you my LDL is going to go down. But at the same time, my oxidized LDL will go up. Oxidized phospholipids on ApoB, my LP little a will go up. Now, those are all stronger metrics for cardiovascular disease than LDL. So why is it that LDL is gonna go down and these stronger metrics for heart disease are gonna go up? Why are we using a poor metric? We should be using metrics like oxidized phospholipids on ApoB or LP little a. Those are the important metrics to be looking at, not LDL. And I can guarantee you that my oxidized phospholipids are not high, my LP little a remains low, even though my LDL has gone up. They're flawed metrics. To say that LDL itself causes atherosclerosis is a real, um, is a real uh, mistake in my opinion. And I appreciate hearing that. And, and like I said, 
that was kind of my main purpose. I definitely wanted to get to that for our listeners because that's one of the biggest obstacles I think that we have in telling people to try this lifestyle. You know, my, it's bad for your cholesterol. It's, I mean, we're just finally getting people to understand eggs aren't bad for you. So we're, we're still decades away from an all meat diet not being, you know, considered evil. And, but I don't really understand why. I don't think there's a lot of critical thinking there. It's just changing our uh, cognitive bias. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of old, old ideas die hard. We've all been brainwashed a little bit. And there's a lot of people on the face of the earth living in indigenous cultures who eat predominantly animal-based diets. And at least epidemiologic surveys of them don't suggest there's any incidence of cardiovascular disease. So it's a, uh, it's a pretty, it's a very evolutionarily consistent thing to do. And we've been told it's bad based on bad science from doctors who are basically fat and unhealthy themselves. So you're going to listen to your unhealthy physician, or are you going to, you know, try and live like your hunter gatherer ancestors? I mean, it's your choice. Yeah. And we're, you know, we're really just not far removed from all of these notions of, you know, what the, what big soda was doing to sugar and, and a fat free revolution or back in the eighties. So you've talked about it a lot. I highly recommend people checking you out on, the Rogan podcast. I watched the entire thing, all three hours of you on on YouTube, and hopefully it'll be on some other platforms in the in the near future. And checking out Carnivore Code, listen to it because there's a lot of big words in there, and it's it's very hard to read. I've got the PDF, but I've been listening to it. And then of course HeartandSoil.co. I have been taking in liver and heart now. So did what? a couple raw shots the other day. People were a little grossed out by it you know it's no different than sushi everybody eats sushi yeah i mean that's what i think of it it's whenever you're eating a raw organ there's always a slight risk of food contamination i mean get it from a healthy cow get it from a source that you trust and you can always cook it a little bit if you prefer to but i've found it to be the easiest thing just eat it raw and i've never had a problem with raw liver myself so i think eating nose to tail if you can't get the fresh organs consider the desiccated organs the freeze-dried organs, which are what we make at heartandsoil.co. Um, but eating nose to tail is, is really going to level up your nutrition. And you don't need to fear any of these things you've been told because they're just based on badly interpreted science. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm going to check out some of the, some of the products you have as well because I've only had heart and, and liver. And I know you have other things like kidney and brain and spleen. Spleen, all, yeah. All we've got, up in there. We've got all kinds of things, thymus and lung and histamine products and We've got a liver and heart product. We've got a colostrum product coming out. We've got a blood product with actual blood in it. We've got all kinds of things. Very cool. Well, well, Dr. Paul, once again, I appreciate you coming on. Glad no truck hit your house. We made it through this one. During, you know, it's like the, the Wizard of Oz. You know, a house right. didn't fall on you. And I yeah. appreciate it. And I can't encourage people enough. At least, at least educate yourself. Check out the book. I've had fantastic results. I'm not looking back. I plan on continuing this, especially now that you've signed off on my markers. That was the one concern. <laughs> and I feel you know much more confident now. So thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me on, brother. It's good to be here. Thanks again for listening to Best Hour of Their Day. If you haven't already, do us a favor. Head over to the Apple Podcast app and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, concerns, feedback for either Fern or myself. Hit us up, besthouroftheirday at gmail.com 
or send us a DM over on Instagram at best hour of their day. Once again, we couldn't do this without the amazing community and you are a part of it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting best hour of their day.